You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're turning again to the 16th chapter of John's Gospel, and we're going to read from John chapter 16, verse 17. And uh, through to the end of the chapter, I believe the passage is on page 1080 in the Church Bible. We're going to read at uh, chapter 16 and verse 16. Uh, This evening we come to the end of Jesus' actual teaching in these chapters 13 through 17. Chapter 17 is taken up entirely with his prayer for his disciples and actually a prayer that stretches out to include all who come to believe through their word. And one of the things we've seen in the course of our studies is that, among other things, Jesus is actually giving hints to the apostles. There are only 11 of them now left in the room, but he's giving them hints that they actually will be the ones who will bring the gospel to the whole world through, among other things, writing the pages of the New Testament. But they are deeply disturbed because Jesus has been saying things about leaving them soon. And this is the context for the passage tonight. In a little while, verse 16, in a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then, after a little while, you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now, is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, 
but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Most institutions where preachers are trained have someone who spends all his life listening to the sermons of students. It uh, must be a very trying and testing experience to listen to young men who are sure that they are God's gift to the church, struggling through their first sermons. And one of the things those strange creatures, professors of preaching, teach, I never had one, so I only know this by hearsay and observation, one of the things they always say to students is, you must make what you are saying absolutely clear to people. It's very important that you don't shoot above their heads. Great Victorian preacher uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said delightfully that the Lord said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. And so we are meant to preach so that everyone can understand. Indeed, there is a little document written in 1645 by the same people who produced our church's confession of faith that instructs ministers that they are to preach plainly so that the meanest may understand. Now, that doesn't mean people from Aberdeen. That means people who have great difficulty understanding spoken communication. So, you're not to shoot above people's heads. You're to aim for the simplest person in the congregation. You can build on that, but you want them to go away with something very clearly fixed in their minds. And that's a simple rule of all communication, isn't it? Except that when you listen to Jesus' disciples, you do wonder what kind of grade Jesus would have got in the preaching class. Because here he's almost at the end of this period of teaching that began in chapter 13, has gone through 14 and 15 and most of 16. And over there in the corner, uh, they're sitting round a large table. And over there in the corner, he can see that six of the disciples are looking at one another and they're saying, what on earth is the master 
talking about. And they are filled with questions. They are, they are actually profoundly confused. He's been teaching them for three years. And actually, almost from the beginning of his teaching, he gave them little hints that this ministry was going to end in suffering and great testing for them. Halfway through it, he began to make it very clear to them that the reason this is the case is because he was going to be arrested, he was going to be tried, he was going to be condemned, and then he would be crucified outside of Jerusalem. And he had said this to them in a variety of ways. He'd given them all kinds of hints. But of course, I think we can understand how impossible they found it to take in. How would anyone do this to our beloved master? And now he's been speaking to them more about that. And it's raised all kinds of questions. John was asking questions. Peter was asking questions. Philip was asking questions. Thomas was asking questions. There were two Judases among the twelve disciples, and one of them was asking questions. This long passage we've seen has been full of questions because they don't understand what Jesus is saying. But the problem is not intellectual. The problem is not intellectual. You live the Christian life for a little while and move among people who have able minds, and you very quickly discover that the problem is never merely intellectual. You explain the gospel to people with very articulate abilities, with clear thinking in many areas of life, and they are just not able to take it in. They can't understand how the gospel works. This gospel almost began with the story of the best theologian in Israel to whom Jesus explained how the gospel works. And he said quite honestly to Jesus, Jesus, I don't understand that. And here after three years, Jesus' dearest disciples appear to be in the same situation. And actually, he has also just told them, this is only the beginning. I have a lot more to teach you, but you wouldn't be able to bear it. I can see that you can hardly bear, you can hardly take in what I'm saying to you now. And as they engage in this conversation, uh, Jesus reads their minds. Nothing, I think, nothing supernatural about this. It must have been fairly obvious in the room what is going on. And so he says to them in verse 19, he saw they wanted to ask him about this. They were too embarrassed to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said? And actually, this whole passage, I think, is Jesus sensitively answering the questions he knew his teaching had been raising. Actually, it, it makes him a superlative teacher, doesn't it? That he's not only been teaching them spiritual truth, 
But now he understands the questions that teaching has been raising in their minds, and without them even having to ask those questions, he's saying, now here are the questions you are asking. You're a college student, and uh, you're listening to a lecture, and things are being thrown at you, and the good teacher. I don't assume everyone who teaches you is a good teacher, but the good teacher understands what goes on in your little gray cells, and just as you're raising difficulties or objections or problems, he will deal with them until the truth of the matter is clear to you. And there are three questions here that clearly are in the disciples' minds. The first is the one that we've already seen. Jesus, what on earth are you talking about when you're speaking about a little while and another little while and going to the Father? The second question is the one that he answers in verses 25 through 27, where the question is this. Why are you speaking to us in riddles? And the third question is the question that he answers at the end of the passage in verses 28 through 33. If we're heading for tribulation, how are you going to help us in our time of tribulation? So here are the three questions. What do you mean by a little while and going to the Father? Second, why do you speak to us in riddles? And thirdly, how are you going to help us when we experience this suffering and trial about which you are speaking? Well, you'll notice he has said in verse 16, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now, if you know the story of the gospel at all, it's actually crystal clear what he means, isn't it? In a little while, he's going to be taken from them. He's going to be crucified, and they will see him no more. And now, for the first time, he's saying, not this is going to happen in the future. He's saying, this is going to happen very soon, in a little while. But, he says, for their encouragement, will you not get this, he says, In a little while you will see me no longer, but then a little while afterwards you will see me. And of course, he's speaking about the resurrection. In a little while he is going to be crucified. Within 24 hours he will be dead. But by the beginning of the new week he will have risen and he'll begin to meet with them and speak to them. And later on in John's gospel, we are told that they will be overjoyed in seeing him again. It wasn't a matter of intelligence. He had told them this in so many different ways. It was that they weren't able to take it in. And so he goes back to the thing again. He says, now, let me put it like this. And you notice how verse 20 begins. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you were of my generation and were brought up on the authorized version, that would be amen, amen. And it's translated in the New International Version, I tell you the truth. It's not that he tells the truth sometimes, he doesn't tell the truth other times. 
This is Jesus underlining what he's saying. Uh, They didn't have italics in those days. They didn't have red letters in those days or block letters in those days to underline things. So, the way the Hebrews underlined things was by repeating them. And that's what Jesus is saying here, truly, truly. Everything He says is true. Some things He says are of vital importance. And here is how He puts it, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So, you see, he's, he's focusing down on this, what will happen in a little while, and then what will happen in a little while afterwards. He says, let me put it as plainly as I can. You are going to be filled with grief, but let me add to that, your grief is going to turn to joy. In a little while, you will be thrown into sorrow, but hang on, because a little while later, your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he uses, in some ways, a completely surprising illustration. It's one of the places in the New Testament where you learn that you don't actually need to experience something to be able to use it as an illustration, isn't it? He says, uh, in this kind of world, they had all been very close to childbirth. And he says, you know what childbirth is like. Uh, Here we are, we're a group of men. There are 12 of us in the room. None of us has ever given birth to a baby, but there isn't one of us who doesn't understand that birth means pain for the mother. But that pain that is part of the birth process gives way, leads to joy. And so it's going to be with you. You are going to go through a period of travail, but that travail is going to be transformed into joy. Now, here's the point he's making, and it's essential to grasp it. That pain is essential to that joy. It isn't just that he's saying, for you disciples, and you can apply this to the whole of the Christian life, suffering will be followed by joy. The point is that the joy is actually produced by going through the suffering. The joy of the childbirth is the fruit of the labor pains. And this actually is typical teaching in the New Testament, that sorrow and joy are not just related to one another on a chronological level. They're related to one another on a causal level. In the purposes of God, it's through the suffering that the joy is created. It's almost as though the New Testament teaches us that in the Christian life, and of course this is going to be a very significant part of their Christian lives, Suffering is the raw materials out of which God creates joy. The Apostle Paul teaches us that, doesn't he? 
he says this light affliction that we're going through is working for us an exceeding weight of glory. So, the Christian life is a life that will be characterized by suffering, by tribulation. But the thing that makes the Christian life so distinctive, and it's built into the very heart of the Christian gospel, is that that tribulation is the raw material out of which the Lord creates the joy, the satisfaction of the life of the Christian believer. And Jesus goes on to say, when that takes place, do you notice what he says? When that takes place, you won't need to ask me any more questions. No, actually, we're told in the New Testament they did ask more questions. But what he's saying is, when the joy of the resurrection takes place, all of these questions you've been asking me, they will just stop because they are all answered in the resurrection. What he seems to be saying to them is that only when you understand what this suffering and pain in which we're all going to share, only when you understand what this is going to lead to, will you then be able to look back and say, I think I'm beginning now to make sense of absolutely everything. Actually, there's a huge lesson for us there in living the Christian life. This was something that was true in the microcosmic level of Jesus and his disciples, but it's something that's true at the macrocosmic level of our lives and of the whole of history. Ultimately, only when the final resurrection takes place will anybody be able to stand back and say, now I understand what all the suffering was about. You go through suffering in the Christian life, our friends in different places tonight going through suffering. And we pray that as the days go on in their lives, they, they may get some glimpse of what God was planning to create out of that suffering. But until the final resurrection, the picture isn't complete. There are all sorts of bits and pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of history and of our lives in particular that we can't make total sense of when the resurrection takes place. This is why the resurrection is so important to the Christian gospel. Then, says Jesus, everything at last will become clear, and, and you'll not need to ask any more questions. And in fact, in great measure, this was true for them, wasn't it? In the resurrection of Jesus, these kinds of questions were all answered. The questions that they then began to ask were questions of, what does this mean for us now, Jesus? Not questions of, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? And he puts this so beautifully, doesn't he, when he says, 
in that day, he says, you'll, you'll no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, in, in that day, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything, he says. But then you will be able to ask for anything. You see what he's saying? He's saying, all these years you've been with me, and I have not once heard you pray, Heavenly Father, give us this. What you've done is you've come to me and you've said, Lord Jesus, give us this. But the day is going to come when you'll actually go to the Heavenly Father, yourself, in my name, and say, Father, will you give us this in the name of your Son? And whatever you ask him, he will give to you. Well, of course, because this is the, the name above all names to the Heavenly Father. The name of Jesus plays on the heartstrings of the Heavenly Father. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian. Of course, this in particular is what it means to pray, that you go to the Heavenly Father and you say the magic word, as it were, Jesus. And His ear is immediately attuned. Where where am I hearing the name of my Son, in whose heart is the name of my Son so exalted that they come to me in Jesus' name? We have the Father's ear as soon as we mention the name of His Son. It's, it's a, we, have a, we have a parallel to that in our own lives, don't we? Someone whom we love more than anyone else in the whole world. And there is something about the mention of their name. Draws our attention. Fixes our gaze. You know my son. You love my son. And of course, that's the reason why Jesus is able to say he'll give you what, what you ask. Because you... You can't go to the Heavenly Father and say, I, I'm coming using the name of your Son here. You couldn't conceivably do that and think to yourself, I'll get out of Him what I want in this business. No, you could only really be doing that. Formally, you could do that. As though the name of Jesus were a piece of magic. But you can't come in the name of the Son of God, surely, and ask for anything that doesn't fit under the canopy. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he's saying to them, I know this is a great mystery. What do I mean by a little while? It's going to be, it's going to be a period of intense pain and suffering for you. You're going to leave me alone. You're going to be scattered, each of you. You're going to be frightened. You're going to be like scattered sheep. But out of all that's going to happen that will almost break you, the Lord is going to do something glorious and wonderful in your life and bring you through because of my resurrection. So he answers 
the first question, which was the question that they were asking one another. What do you mean by a little while? And then I think Jesus goes on to answer another question that lies underneath that question. Notice how he begins in verse 25, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. And I think clearly what's in their minds is, why are you telling us all this in riddles? Why are you talking about mothers having babies? What's that got to do with what's about to happen in our lives? Why have you spoken to us in this cryptic, enigmatic, parable-like fashion? Well, of course, the answer is that he was using all of his skills as a teacher to, to drop little thoughts into their minds that would break open their minds through the ministry of the Spirit, and they would look back and they would say, oh, now I see. He was giving them not only propositions, he was giving them pictures that would help them to understand something that was actually beyond their understanding. He says, the day will come when I will speak plainly to you about the Father. And actually, that was that was the first thing Jesus said after his resurrection. Um, incidentally, do you know the first thing Jesus said after his resurrection? First words that came out of his mouth? First word was Mary, wasn't it? And then the next words were, Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my God and their God, to my Father, who is also their Father. And this is what he's now going on to say. He's spoken to them in riddles because they can't understand plain Aramaic, as it were. But he now wants them to understand that in that day, they will not ask anything, as it were, directly from Him. They will be able to ask the Father because, notice these words in verse 27, because they are overwhelmingly important. You will be able to go to Him yourself because the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. You will know that the Father himself loves you. You can go a long way in the Christian life just on those words, can't you? What a thing to know. The Father himself loves you. And you can go to Him. I watched some of our nation's leaders on the news after this awful disaster in Glasgow. Was struck by the reference to prayers. Our prayers are with these people. It raised all kinds of questions in my mind. Um, what happens to you in the National Health Service in Scotland today if you say to a patient, my prayers are with you? Apparently you can say it if you're a politician. But 
I also wanted to know, to whom then are you praying? To whom then are you praying? Now you see what it means to be a real Christian here. A real Christian is somebody who goes to the Father in prayer because he or she is able to say, this is the baseline for all of our prayers. Because I trust in Jesus and love Him, this is what I know. The Father Himself loves me. I say you can go a long way in the Christian life just in those words. Just statistically, just statistically, it's likely that there are numbers of us in the room who are Christians who almost swallow on those words. We're not quite able to say them. We're able to speak about the love of the Father, but then everybody speaks about the love of the Father. And everybody you meet who believes in God is sure of one thing. They are sure, they tell you, that God is love. And I often say to Christians, you need to poke a little bit because they're lying through their teeth. They wouldn't be living that way. They wouldn't be speaking that way. They wouldn't be so guarding their lives against God if they really believed that God is love. But to be able to say, the Father Himself loves me. They'd only ever seen one person who was able to say that, hadn't they? They'd never seen anyone like Jesus. And they could see in John's Gospels, full of this, the one thing that was clear about Jesus was that He knew the Father Himself loves me. He lived in the love of the Father. He prayed out of the love of the Father. He taught as an expression of the love of the Father. And so he's teaching them. He's saying, you know, what lies underneath these, what you think of as riddles, is a very simple truth that one day soon will be clear to you. That because you've come to trust in me and to love me, the Father Himself loves you. And so you can take anything to Him. You can take everything to Him. Because even if nobody else loves you, the Father Himself loves you. Now, that raises a great question, doesn't it? How do you know the Father Himself loves you? It's not because you're lovable. You couldn't have been here this morning and left the room thinking that you were by nature lovable. Do you know it because things are going well in your life? But things may go very unwell in your life. Where are you going to be then if you think the reason I believe the Father loves me is because things are going well in my life? The great thing Jesus wants them to know is that the Father Himself loves them even when their lives are falling to pieces. But how can we know that? Well, of course, John had told us much earlier on in the gospel that the Father loved the world so much that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
I often say to people, you know, to say, I know the Father loves me because Jesus died for me, is not quite how the New Testament puts it. Actually, the way the New Testament puts it is, Jesus died for you because the Father loves you. He didn't start loving you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because the Father loves you. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, isn't it? God the Father demonstrated, proved his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, this is where this this tribulation they're going to go through, this, this travail they're going to go through because of Jesus dying on the cross, just the most awful thing imaginable to them, is actually going to be the very thing that will demonstrate to them without fear of contradiction that if the Father has done this for me, given His Son to the cross for me, then I can be sure he really does love me. You're a father. For whom would you give your son, your only son? What an expression of the father's love this is. And he's really saying to them, there's no way I can help you to understand this without telling you these enigmatic things that you'll only understand when I die on the cross for your sins and I rise again and see you again. And then, of course, there's the third question. What does Jesus mean a little while and I'm going to the Father? Why is he speaking in riddles? And the third question, well, if we're going to go through this period of suffering and tribulation, Jesus, how are you going to help us? And you can see the process leading on here. First of all, there's the clarification that what's going to happen is they're going to suffer. The reason he's speaking to them in riddles is to try and help them to understand the deep significance of the suffering they're going to go through. And that, of course, inevitably raises the question, how are you going to help us? And he answers that question in verses 28 to 33. It's very very touching scene, isn't it? They say to him so immaturely, ah, we've got it now. We understand you now, Jesus. You're not speaking in riddles any longer. If you'd only not spoken in riddles, we would have understood you before. Now, we see clearly what you're talking about, and you can almost, almost sense the weary smile on Jesus' face. You think you really understand what I'm talking about? You're hardly beginning to understand what I'm talking about. You are going to be separated from one another. I am going to be left on my own. And two things emerge here. One is they have a genuine concern for their Lord Jesus. They're beginning to sense that he's going to be taken from them. He's not just going to go from them. He's going to be taken from them. And this, this touches them profoundly. And Jesus says, in a sense, you don't need to worry about me because my Father 
who loves me will be with me. But then there's this beautiful expression of Jesus' concern for them. And he, he says to them in, in, uh, in verse 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's kind of odd, isn't it? I've told you these things so that you will have peace. What in these things brings peace? Well, no, that's not actually what he said. What he said is, I've told you these things so that in a world in which you will have trouble, you will be able to find peace in me. And as we close our study this evening, I want you to notice that there are three words that Jesus uses here. Let's just close with a little language lesson tonight. There are three words that Jesus uses here that are actually quite familiar to you, although none of them is an English word. So, this is a little foreign language lesson. The first word is the word logos. Jesus is the logos, the Word of God. And he's saying, when you go through tribulation, the first thing that will help you is the Word that I've spoken to you. The Word of God will stabilize you in times of tribulation. The second word is the word shalom. Still the greeting in the, the Middle East isn't salam, shalom. It means peace and well-being. And the third word that Jesus uses is, I have overcome the world. I am the victor over the world. Uh, everybody in the room actually knows the Greek word for victory, because some of you may actually be wearing it somewhere. It's the word Nike. It's the Greek word for victory. You see what Jesus is saying? Just think about these, just let these three words run round your mind during the course of the week. First of all, there is the Logos, the Word that protects me. Secondly, there is the Shalom, the peace, the well-being that I have because I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. And thirdly, I actually can go and just do it because Jesus has won the Nike. Jesus has won the victory. And yet, you know, when you stand back from all this, I think there is something in a way even more wonderful than this. It's that Jesus knew their questions and the things that disturbed them before they even mentioned them to him or asked him about them. That is our Jesus. That's your Jesus, if he's yours. He knows absolutely every question, every problem, every difficulty, every trial, every mystery. 
before you even ask him about it. That's why you can take anything to him. Nothing will surprise him. Nothing will shock him. Nothing will disturb him. Nothing will make him say, I don't want to know about that. Because he knows it all already. He knows you. And here he's teaching these disciples who have found all this so difficult to grasp, especially this notion that to be a Christian means that you share in Christ's suffering. And he's saying to them, there is no question you can ask that I am not able to answer. You may not see the final answer until many years have passed, but I know the answer. And this is how this whole section began, wasn't it, with Peter saying to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus, you remember, responding and saying to him, Peter, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but afterwards you will understand. In a little while, they wouldn't understand what was Jesus doing, but then in a little while, they would understand. And they would learn that this would go on and on in their Christian lives, that there would be times when they would look up to heaven and say, Lord Jesus, why have you brought me into these riddles in life? And he would say, find peace in me. Remember my word. I have won the victory. Now, trust me unreservedly. Well, are we able to do that, my friends? Different thing in each of our lives. We're able to bring it to the Lord and say, this is a mystery to me, but it's clear to you. And so, because I know the Father himself loves me, I'm bringing it to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the glorious comfort of the gospel. We pray that as we read your word, it will find lodging place in our hearts and that we will be strengthened in times of difficulty and struggle. And we pray as we think of a passage like this that stretches us beyond our ability to follow Jesus where he is leading us. And we know the same is true of our lives. He is leading us places where we're not sure where He's taking us. And sometimes what He does seems to be a riddle, an enigma, a mystery. But we thank You that He has overcome the world and that in Him we have peace and that we have more reasons for having heart than for losing heart. And so we come to you because you've taught us through your Son that you yourself love us. And in this, we rejoice. Help us to live this way. We pray, we commit one another to you that we may do so. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.